The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. We are going through 1 Corinthians, kind of a thought at a time, sometimes a paragraph at a time. Uh, Starting the beginning of chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to go all the way through to chapter 16, because that's how Paul, Paul wrote it, the apostle, and that's how he wanted it to be read and understood by the church. We are now finishing up chapter 3, and we're going to get into chapter 4, verse 5. Uh, it's a big chunk of verses, more than we've typically been doing each week, but it couldn't be divided because it's, it's really one argument. So we can't really chop it up. It all goes together. The verse break in chapter 4, verse 1, really, unfortunately, shouldn't be there, technically speaking. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote this, he didn't write with chapter divisions and verse divisions. It's just one long, continuous, one major run-on sentence. Um, that's just the way they didn't really punctuate when he wrote it, whether it was on a scroll of a dead leaf or some animal skin, however he wrote that. But today, uh, just for our convenience, that's why it's broken up into chapter divisions. So don't let that break between chapter 3 and 4 confuse you as though he's talking about a different topic. He's not at all. It's an ongoing discussion. Uh, so we're looking at 1 Corinthians, and we'll keep plugging away. Last week, I gave a summary of the trip I had to Russia. Wonderful privilege there in Siberia. I gave a slideshow, and so we are resuming uh with 1 Corinthians. We haven't been here in a while because we took a break at Christmas to talk about Christ, and then I was gone for two weeks, and Sam Kim preached in my place. Thank you, Sam. We said thank you, but we'll say thank you again because you weren't here last week. So thanks for bringing the word the last couple of weeks while I was gone. So now we'll get back into Corinthians and keep plugging away. And there's good stuff for us here uh, by way of review for the book of Corinthians. Uh, the Corinthian church, the city there in Corinth near Greece, was a church that Paul started planted that church, a little group of faithful folks, and he invested time and energy and kept building that church, spent a year and a half there, and then it grew a little bit, and then he was on his way and planting other churches off to Ephesus and other places, and been gone a while, and uh, there were dramatic salvations that took place uh, among the Corinthians because their background was very pagan, uh, not familiar with the Old Testament, most of them, not a biblical worldview, a lot of horrible entrenched habits that they had in their previous life from sexual immorality to drunkenness and horrible ethics, idolatry. Uh, many of them got saved. And then unfortunately, with time, they carried over some of those old habits and practices into the church and became very messy, uh, especially after Paul had left. And one of the horrible fleshly habits that they carried over into the church was the way they conducted themselves before they got saved. And in their culture, the Roman culture, the Greek culture, the pagan, secular, unsaved culture, it was a very self-centered culture and very cliquish and the party spirit reigned supreme. And you had very strong allegiances to small groups of people, starting with yourself. And after getting saved, that wasn't totally eradicated. They carried that very self-centered divisive spirit over into the church and now it was the seeds had been planted now it's blossoming and bearing fruit and Paul heard about it and so he needed to attend to it quickly this problem that uh, actually Corinth had many problems in the church one of the main ones was division in their church the party spirit um, and so uh, I said earlier that the book of Corinthians can actually three main divisions if you wanted to use is the first uh, four chapters is on division so we're Still in the middle of that. Paul's been going on a long time about this divisive issue because it was so important. That can kill a church, by the way. Division that starts small in a church and just grows and very, very destructive. And so Paul knows he's got to give a lot of time and attention to this very important issue. Uh, so chapters 1 through 4 is on the division of the church. Paul wants to bring unity. And then five, chapter 5 to 7 is on the purity of the church, moral purity. And then chapter 8 through 16 will be on the theology or the orthodoxy of the church. Uh, and that's how Satan always attacks a church or a Christian is in those three areas. I keep saying that because it's so simple. So just remember that. Satan attacks a church. He wants to attack its unity, its moral purity, and its theology or its orthodoxy. That's it. And Satan was having a field day with the Corinthian church. So we're in that section where Paul's dealing with division 
uh, and a lack of unity in the church. Been arguing for uh, going on four chapters now, and he's bringing it to a kind of a climax and crescendo here. I'm going to wrap up his arguments. Uh, for the most part, he's been challenging them, exposing and confronting their sin. And now a uh, change takes place in 3.18 where now he's going to start giving some very specific commands and imperatives. Okay, In light of everything I just said for three chapters now, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this, you've got to do this. So that's why in this section here, chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 5, there are five imperatives here, five commands that Paul gives Christians, which is very practical. So if you walk away from the sermon today saying, well, what am I supposed to do now? Well, you do the five commands that are in this passage. That makes it real simple. Uh, so they're not conjured up by me. They come right out of Scripture. And that's actually kind of how I pieced the sermon together. I didn't make up my own outline. I thought I'm just going to use Paul's uh, with all of his commands here. And so those are my main points. So I called this uh, section or this sermon judging because he's talking about judging. Judging the do's and the don'ts. There's a right way to judge. There's a wrong way to judge. The Corinthians were judging the wrong way. They were judging themselves the wrong way. They were judging other Christians the wrong way. They were judging the leadership in the church the wrong way. Paul addresses that. He says, don't do it that way. Stop doing that. But if you're going to judge, then here's how you need to judge the right way. And so all of us, very practical lesson. How should we judge things in the church? How should we judge ministries? How should we judge other people? How should we judge pastors? So uh, really practical in terms of well, what do we do? Uh, like I said, I my hinges here are these Commands. So just I want to highlight the commands for you first. First command here is chapter 3, verse 18. He says, let no one deceive himself. Let no Christian be self-deceived. Do not deceive yourself. Then the second command, verse 21, let no one boast in humans. Or literally, stop boasting in human people. Uh, the next one is chapter 4, verse 1. Okay, Christian, let a man regard us in this manner. If you're going to judge people, if you're going to judge pastors, then do it this way that I'm about to tell you. That's a command. Stop doing it the wrong way. Do it this way. And then the next command is chapter 4, verse 5. Do not go on passing judgment before the time. Stop judging illegitimately. Stop judging prematurely is his main argument there. So those are the, really the practical imperatives and commands in this section and uh, it carries and develops a consistent theme and that is addressing the division they had in the church so by way of reminder because he brings it up again notice in chapter 3 verse 22 whether paul or apollos or cephas paul apollos cephas okay he he brought those names up earlier in chapter 3 who then is apollos or starting at verse 4 i am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and then he brought that up. That was the original problem in the church. Go back to chapter 1. I heard there's divisions among you, there's squabbling, there is quarreling. What is the nature or the source of all this quarreling? What are you guys fighting and arguing about? They are fighting and arguing about the leaders in the church of Corinth. Guys who served there, pastored there, were elders there, taught there at one time or another, starting with Apollos, uh, Paul, and Peter. And the Corinthians developed factions and loyal, illegitimate loyalties to fallen, sinful human beings. I am. I belong to Paul. No, I. Well, we belong to Cephas or Peter. No, well, we belong to Apollos. That was very carnal. It was creating division. And so, actually, this is what he's been trying to deal with for going on four chapters. This division. And the, division, the origin of the division was fighting and arguing and having different opinions about the leadership of the church. How practical is that? Because that goes on today in every real church in America and it has for 2,000 years. And it goes on at GBF. Fighting, arguing, squabbling, gossiping about the leadership in the local church. So we have wonderful practical lessons to take away for us to help preserve unity in our church. And so he continues with this theme. So let's go ahead. I just broke it up into those four questions. Um, Paul's talking to the Corinthians, but I kind of turned it on us uh, as far as our main question. So let's go to the first one. The first question that we need to deal with is 18 to 20. Uh, and the question is, are you self-deceived? And then I have to ask myself, am I self-deceived? Boy, that's a... Boy, if you're self-deceived, you don't know you're self-deceived. So how in the world can you fix that problem? And if you're self-deceived, you don't list anybody else telling yourself deceived because you're self-deceived. So I struggle with this all week. How in the world do you fix that problem? Wow. What a dilemma. 
But that's his main point here. It's been going on for three chapters, and now he's going to get practical and say, you know what, Corinthians? You got, you're self-deceived. You are deluded. You're thinking wrong. Okay, that's the main thing that he's addressing. When he's talking about self-deception, he's talking about wrong thinking. So let's read 18 through 20. Let no one, let no Christian, let no Christian in the Corinthian church keep deceiving himself. It's singular. He's pointing to individuals. Stop it. If any person, any Christian in the church among you, in your Corinthian congregation, thinks that he is wise, he's addressing their thinking. Self-deception has to do with the way you think. So that's where you start. Am I self-deceived? Well, I don't know. Our first inclination is to say, well, of course I'm not. Because we always defend ourselves naturally. But if you wanted to do an honest evaluation, you've got to examine your thinking. And that's what he says. Okay, I'm going to stop being self-deceived. Quit deceiving yourself. And then the immediate challenge, Paul says, is if any person here among you thinks, okay, it's how you think. And it's how you think about yourself and other people as you look down your nose. Uh, If any man among you thinks that uh, he is wise in this age, according to the standards of the world, then he must become foolish so that he may become wise. So a couple of challenges there for all of us to think about. Am I self-deceived or where does it start? Well, we've got to examine our thinking. We've got to subject our thinking to other people who are objective and know us well. And we also have to subject our thinking to the truth of the Bible. That's really the main gauge. The Bible is supposed to be a searchlight that exposes all of our wrong thinking. Uh I overheard one of our elders this morning talking to somebody and said, when we read the Bible, inevitably, we should be troubled as we read it. We should be challenged as we read it. We should be uh, confronted when we read it, if we're really trying to understand it. Because it is. It's confrontational. Scripture is the living Word of God. Because we are fallen. And every single one of us is prone to being self-deceived. So it, when you hear that, uh, do not be self-deceived. If your first reaction is, well, I don't have that problem, then actually you're the number one candidate. You are the poster child of self-deception. Because that's what Paul said, take heed lest ye fall. Man, if you think you're so hot and invulnerable to this, then you're the ideal candidate for this. Do not trust yourself. That's good advice, actually. Except you don't like it when one of your family members says it to you, but it is good advice. Do not trust yourself. So a couple challenges there uh, regarding your thinking. And then he says, uh, and also the standard by which you gauge things and the authority which you have chosen to determine truth in life, spiritual truth and practical truth. Because he says, if anybody in your congregation thinks that he's wise, so if you think you're a hotshot and you pride yourself on being smart and educated, ooh, then you're a candidate for being self-deceived. If you have an inflated view of yourself, naturally speaking. And also using the wrong standard by which to gauge and assess things. And that's using the standard and the wisdom of the world. If anybody thinks that he's wise, and he's wise in the eyes of the world. Oh, the world, I am impressive in the world. I am prestigious. Uh, The secular world and their standards, which are really messed up and contrary to God's. By the way, God's wisdom and God's standards are typically contrary to common sense. Common sense should not be the gauge. So if we're using a worldly standard, then if that's the case of you, then you need to stop being self-deceived. And the way you become uh, not being deceived anymore is to become a fool. Become a fool for Christ. And he already talked about what that means. Be foolish enough to believe simply in what the Bible says and the and gospel truths, regardless of what others think around you. Do not be embarrassed by Scripture and biblical truth as you are intimidated by the world and their standards. So what is your standard? Are you willing to be a fool for Jesus Christ? Are you willing to be a fool for Christ? Uh, I was informed about the uh, debate, the big debate that happened recently between Ken Ham of the Creation Research Institute. He's a believer, Christian, young earth creationist, great scientist, and a wonderful believer. Ken Ham had a debate against Bill Nye, the science guy, the children entertainer, TV guy, great personality, very articulate, entertaining, atheist, unbeliever, uh, old earth evolutionist guy and they debated and apparently millions of people tuned into that debate and you can still go online and see it so i watched it this week some of it and i was just struck about the the arrogance of bill nye the science guy about how uh belittling he is to christians uh if they believe in a literal genesis if they believe in a young earth if they believe in a real adam and eve if they believe in a noah's ark and he just on and on and all of his 
uh, his, posturing himself that if you believe all that stuff, you can't be a real scientist. You can't be taken seriously as a scientist. And so he's just so uh, arrogant in his approach and dismisses uh, anybody, especially Christians, who would have a different view of him. And his, his view is the popular view in the world. It's the accepted view in the world. And if you believe contrary to Bill Nye the science guy, you will be a, ni- a minority in the world. You will be rejected by most of the academic community in the world. You'd have a hard time getting a job or being tenured at a major university in a scientific research department because of it. You would be considered a fool. And unfortunately, some Christians will compromise their views, their convictions, biblical teachings to accommodate the so-called wisdom of the world so they can get that grant or that money or that scholarship so they can do their research, so they can get their tenured position. happens all the time. That is compromise. So that's what Paul's saying. Don't buy into the mold and the standards and the so-called scientific approach of the world that is contrary to God. Be a fool for Christ. But if you're buying into the standard of the world, you are deceiving yourself. You're believing the wrong thing. It was kind of sad. Major Christian spokespersons and leaders this week who blasted Ken Ham for his view that Genesis was literal, that Genesis 1 was literal to be taken at face value. You would be shocked at the names if I told you who these people were. They should have been condemning Bill Nye the Science Guy's satanic view. But fellow Christians telling Ken Ham he's an idiot because everybody knows evolution is true. And you can mix that with the Bible. What's wrong with you, Ken? So that was sad. Those are people who are self-deceived. which Those are Christians who are self-deceived. Exactly what Paul is talking about. Don't do that. And so we get self-deceived a lot of times when we have a false standard and we are embracing the standard and the convictions and the so-called science of the fallen world. That's the phrase Paul uses in 1 Timothy 6, so-called science. Everybody supposedly believes it. Everybody says it's true when, no, it isn't. It's contrary to what God has revealed in His Word. And so Paul's making his point. One of the main problems that the Corinthians had and why they were being divisive is because they were thinking wrong and they had an inflated view of themselves and they were also measuring things on the secular, worldly standard of how to gauge things and even how to assess their pastors. They were using a worldly gauge. As a result, they were deceived. Paul says, change your thinking. Uh, Don't be deceived anymore. So I came up with some diagnostic questions to help us because this is really challenging. Stop being deceived. Don't be self-deceived. How do I do that? Uh, Just here's some thoughts. Uh, These are things you're supposed to ask yourself. In, in helping assess whether you're self-deceived or not. Do you boast in men? Do you boast in human beings? Do you elevate humans? Because that's part of their self-deception. Do you elevate humans illegitimately and rob God of His glory? Uh, are you teachable? Even that's kind of a hard question to apply to yourself. Well, of course I'm teachable. <laughs> really? Uh, really, I think uh, it's only other people who can possibly answer that question objectively, whether you're teachable or not. Are you a know-it-all? Well, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, yeah, I know, yeah, I know. Or do you feel like you have to say something about everything and you're an authority on every subject that ever talks, comes up in a conversation? If you're an authority and have to give an opinion about every topic that comes up in a conversation, there's a good possibility you are not teachable. You are what we call a know-it-all, and that's being self-deceived. Are you impressed or swayed by the wisdom of the world? If you are you could be self-deceived. Our degrees, formal education, status in society, and the opinions of men important to you in your identity? If so, then you could be self-deceived. Are you overly concerned about what people think of you? If so, you're probably vulnerable to being self-deceived. Do you have a simple view of the Bible? If you do, then there's a good chance that you Uh, have a defense against being self-deceived because you believe Scripture so easily, so readily, and it protects you from being self-deceived. Because that's the key, is using the Scripture to examine yourself and your views. And so, are you questioning the Bible? Are you trying to mix the Bible with secular truth? Or do you just walk on the Bible at face value and take it by faith? Christians are supposed to walk by faith, not by sight. Not by the fossil record. But by what God said. 
do you regularly pray, asking God to help you to be teachable? God, uh, give me a teachable heart. God, expose any self-deception that I may have in me that I don't see. God, expose blind sides that I have in me. You know what? God will answer that prayer, and he always does. Except he usually answers it in a way that we don't like. Because when you pray, God, show me a blind side that I have in my life and in my thinking. In Jesus' name, amen. And we expect a lightning bolt from heaven to reveal it when actually God will usually answer that prayer, bring a member of your family to tell you to your face, and you don't like it. No, I don't. Uh, you, uh, no, I'm here. I'm an answer to God's prayer. You have a blind spot in this area. But that needs to be a regular part of our prayer life, and we need to welcome the feedback. Um, are you a fool for Christ? Because that's what Paul said to do to counter self-deception. Am I willing to uh, stand for Christ regardless of uh, human opinion or how I will be uh, made fun of or mocked as a Christian in my simplistic views? I was also this week watching a debate not really a debate, but a discussion between Bill O'Reilly and Richard Dawkins, who just is the world's most famous atheist and anti-theist. He hates God and the idea of God, and he writes books for, to that end, and he's very proud of it. He's not apologetic about it. And um, Richard Dawkins, and so him and Bill O'Reilly are going at it, and I was just taken aback about how arrogant he is, uh, Richard Dawkins, and how adamant he is about his view that God doesn't exist. God is the worst thing that was ever conceived by humanity. God and Christianity and religion are destroying the world and have destroyed history and are guilty of the most heinous crimes in humanity and on and on he goes. Um, and then he's just totally making a mockery of people that believe in Noah and Noah's Ark and the animals and he thinks you're an idiot and a buffoon and a fool if you believe in that. So those simple Bible stories. And I'm thinking, well, I believe in Noah and his ark and his cute little animals. Wow. Am I not scientific? No, I, that's what God said. God knows more than Richard Dawkins. So are you willing to be a fool for Christ? Do you talk about the weaknesses of others on a regular basis? If you do, you're probably self-deceived. Because if you're being critical about the weaknesses of others, other Christians, other pastors, other ministers, other people in the church on a regular basis, then you're doing that because you think you are better than they are, which means your standard isn't Christ's perfection in the Bible. It means you are the standard of perfection and that you're judging them based on your perspective. And that is wrong. That's what's going on with the Corinthians. And Paul said that is self-deception. Don't do that. So monitor how you speak about other Christians behind their back. Uh, the Corinthians had a problem with that. Has another believer recently told you that you are self-deceived or wrong? That's a good way to gauge whether I'm self-deceived. So-and-so said the other day that I'm self-deceived. Wow. Uh, do you always use Scripture as the standard of your thinking? If you do, then that protects you against being self-deceived. Um, are you very opinionated and vocal by nature, by personality? If you are, you're vulnerable to being self-deceived. You speak too much. In many words, there is sin. So those are just questions I came up as I was trying to evaluate. Wow, how do I know if I'm self-deceived? That is very difficult. So that's an exhortation from Paul to the Corinthians. Uh, guard against that. Become a fool for Christ. You haven't been doing that, Corinthians. And as a result, you're creating division in the church and you're judging your ministers falsely. You're even judging me, the apostle, falsely. And the Corinthians were judging Paul with a wrong standard. They were judging him falsely. Some were elevating him beyond what he deserved and giving him praise. We are of Paul. We belong to Paul. Paul's the best. Yay, yay, yay. That was wrong. That was sinful. That was evil. That was wicked. And Paul knew it. And then others were judging him falsely by being overly critical of him. Saying, oh, Paul's not as good as Apollos. That was evil. That was wrong. That was divisive. That was satanic. That was fleshly. So he's combating both extremes. It's not just his critics he thinks are being sinful. It's his fan club that needs to be rebuked just as much. And so verse 19, the wisdom of this world is foolishness. It's idiocy. It is moronic. That is the literal Greek word. It is moronic before God. God is the only wise one. All wisdom truly comes from him, for it is written. Where do you go to get true wisdom? He, Paul quotes from Scripture two times. That's a good example for us. Where do we go to get true wisdom? From Scripture. And Paul refers to Job chapter 5 and also from the Psalms. Highlighting that God is wiser than the wisest human and God makes human beings look like foolish idiots because God is the only one. He is the all-wise one. 
He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. Like Haman who got hung by his own gallows. Thought he was so wise. And again, the psalm says, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. He knows the very thoughts and motives of so-called wise people that aren't wise at all. So that's where it starts. Uh, Key to determining whether you're deceived or not is what does God think about issues and what does God think of my thinking and what does the Word of God say and what do God's people say about what I think. Great challenge for all of us. God help us to not be self-deceived. Paul goes on to the Corinthians. Okay, don't be self-deceived anymore. Think the right way, Corinthians. And then he goes on to verse 21 in our next point. Uh, Do you praise some pastors over other pastors? Because that's what the Corinthians were doing. That was the problem in these four chapters. Some were saying, I like Paul better than I like Paulus. I like Apollos better than I like Paul. I like Peter the best. That is divisive. Don't do that. That's why he says in verse 21, so then let no one boast in human. Quit boasting in human people. Paul... Apollos, Peter, let will tell you the truth. They are sinful. They are fallen. They are finite. They are not God. God is a jealous God. The only one that deserves the glory or any praise whatsoever is the triune God of the universe, starting with the Lord Jesus risen from the dead and God the Father who deserves all the glory. Anytime you praise a human being illegitimately, you are robbing God of his glory. God doesn't like that. He hates it. He is a jealous God. That's what the scripture says. God and God alone. Sola glory to God. The, the beautiful solas. Glory, glory only goes to God in spiritual and religious things. And that's where they were blowing it. They were boasting in human beings, fallen human beings, and as a result, also pitting them against each other as though they're a nemesis of one another or enemies. As though Paul didn't like Apollos and Peter didn't like Paul. That was totally the furthest thing from the truth. They were partners in the ministry. Quit boasting in human beings. He just said that in chapter 1, verse 31. We saw it earlier. He just lays it on the line. So that, just as it is written, let him who boasts or brag, if you're going to elevate a name, if you're going to throw out a name, then only boast in the Lord. That's it. Or boast in, only in the, the glory of Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection on behalf of sinners, said Paul in Galatians 6. So don't boast in human beings. That's very practical. Uh, and the Corinthians were doing that. We're challenged with this all the time because of the personality cult uh, that we are continually confronted with. The idols, the American idols and the personalities. And uh, Every year, either Newsweek or one of those secular magazines has an article on the top 25 most influential pastors in America. And th- these are written by unbelievers. How do they know who the most influential and best pastors are in America? I read it every year. And then inevitably, sadly, as the years go by, their top 25, oh, this guy committed adultery, this guy's not even a Christian anymore, this guy left his church, this guy stole a bunch of money from that church, was kicked out. This So they're making premature judgments and they have a false standard. And the standard by which they're using is totally illegitimate because the world standard of assessing men, humans, pastors, totally wrong because they gauge and assess churches by numbers. This church in Texas with 13,000 members in only five years. Well, that's not really impressive because Islam has growing at a faster rate than that, and they have been for a long time. So sheer numbers, or they look at the influence of his personality. He's written this many books and sold this many books. Or he makes this much money. Or he's on this many radio stations. And on and on with their false standard. Or he is this successful. And they're talking about ministry. The only one that actually can assess or gauge success in ministry in the spiritual realm, is God and God alone. That's why people ask me, so Cliff, how's the church going? I, I hesitate to say anything. What do you mean, how's the church going? Is it going good? Is it going bad? Is God blessing? Is it going great? Ooh, yikes. Well, it's, I don't know. God, God is the one who has to judge, and he knows, and we're going to get more to that on point number three, so... But quit boasting in people. I, when I was in Siberia, I had a few, I had some time each night when I can actually get on the internet. And I, I thought, well, now's a good time to catch on what's catch up on what's going on in the Christian world because it's been a long time. I've been too busy. I want to stay on the cutting edge, but I'm not on the cutting edge. And what what are the things going on in the Christian world and YouTube and all this stuff? And I was just, uh, 
I was aghast at what's going on. A lot of it was bad. The latest fads and movements and things we're supposed to be doing and the latest best-selling book in the, in the average Christian bookstore that I was totally clueless about. Uh, the men's retreat, we picked up one on the circle maker. The circle maker. And I'm supposed to be making circles wherever I go. I didn't know that. I was like, really? Wow, okay. Uh, but it, or the prayer of Jabez was years ago and before that. And then there was the 40 days of this and the 40 days of that and Acts 29 and this personality and that personality. And people come up all the time. Have you heard of this guy and this guy and this guy? And he's the new uh, latest thing coming down the pike. And here's his book. And have you heard of this guy and that guy and this guy and his mu- movement and his teaching and whatever? And I'm just, it's, too, I, it's going too fast. And I can't keep up with all these names and personalities and people. And it's like, I, I can only remember like Paul and, and Corinthians and Jesus. And I think I'm going to stick to that. Uh, that other thing, it's too fast moving and changing and can't keep up with it. And then it becomes totally uh, obsolete five years later. And nobody's talking about that fad or movement or book anymore. And then, you know, what do you do with the old T-shirt? Nobody knows what it means anymore. Or the coffee cup. That's because we are prone to boast in human personalities. And uh, we struggle with this as Christians. The seminary students struggle with this. I struggle with this big time. That's just if you're a seminary student, you struggle with this more than anybody. Because you, you root for certain pastors and preachers like you do your favorite professional football player. And that's just not good. Not good at all. Uh, so Paul wants to correct their thinking. Stop boasting in your idol, Paul, you Paul group. Stop boasting in Apollos, you Apollos faction over there. Stop boasting in Peter. You've never even met him, by the way. And you're creating division among yourselves. And then, so he challenges them, gives them a command, stop doing that, boast only in God. And then in verse 21, he says, instead of doing that, think the other way. Think the converse of how you're thinking. How are they thinking? Chapter 1, verse 10 and following. They were saying, I belong to Paul. Little faction over there. And then this faction was saying, I belong to Apollos. In other words, I am a slave of Paul and him alone, and he is my master. And Paul says, you guys are thinking totally upside down. Verse 21, second part of the verse. Don't you know that all things belong to you, Christian? Wow. Boy, take that home for lunch. That's a good thing to meditate on all throughout the week to carry you through. If you're a Christian, all things belong to you. If you're a Christian, all things belong to you. He ends, he, and then he puts it at the end as well of verse 22, he summarizes, all things belong to you. So he's being emphatic. Christian, change your thinking. You are not a slave of the Apostle Paul. The sheep don't belong to the pastor. The pastor and all the pastors belong to the church. That's how you need to think. That is exact opposite thinking. You don't belong to Paul, but Paul and Apollos and Peter belong to you. They are your treasure that Christ has given you. Isn't that amazing? That is the exact opposite thinking we need to have. Well, I like Pastor Cliff. Well, I like Pastor Bob. Well, I like Sam the Elder. Well, no. No, they are all three or all the elders and all the deacons and who are all the leaders of your church. They, they all belong to you. They are a gift from Christ to you. They are partners in the ministry. You're not supposed to divide them up. That is myopic thinking. That is narrow-minded thinking. That is territorial thinking. That is divisive thinking. Change your thinking. God has given them to you as a treasure, as a gift to help. They're servants to help you. That's like uh, it's like say you, you got uh, say you have like uh, eight kids in your family. No, make it nine. And your husband buys you, and you're the mommy, and the husband gets you a new van, and you bring the brand new. 2015 Honda Odyssey with all the bells and whistles home in the garage. And then all the kids, you know, and they're younger and they're self-centered and narcissistic and territorial. And they all, and they run out and grab the car and they all get a position in the car. I get the front seat. I get the front passenger seat. And then one of them jumps in the back. Well, I've got the back. And the other one, well, I've got the second row, this side. And I'm, well, I've got this side and I've got to win. And they're all fighting. Stay off my territory. Get away. This is my seat. And they're fighting with each other and they're punching each other as you cross the line. And then uh, dad comes home and says, whoa, time out. So, Johnny, why are you spitting on Sally? Well, because uh, he touched the front seat and it belonged to me. Well, no, Johnny, your thinking is wrong. Because the front seat doesn't belong to you. Yeah, it does. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. No, it doesn't. Yeah, it does. No, it doesn't. I'm the dad about the car. No, it doesn't. Actually, it's better that you don't just own the front seat. You, The whole van belongs to all of you. And then all the kids are like, 
what, really? You mean I can go in the front seat too? Uh, absolutely. That, that's what Paul is saying. You are so myopic and narrow-minded and territorial when in reality all these things belong to you, Christian. You've inherited all things through Christ. Why are you fighting about it? The whole van belongs to you. And so he goes on, what else? Well, what are these things that belong to you? Well, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, don't fight over them anymore. They are your treasure to be enjoyed. They are servants for you that God has put in your life to bless you. They were faithful men. They were godly men. Change your attitude. Not only that, the world, life and death belongs to you, Christian. Isn't that amazing? The whole world belongs to you. How is that possible? This is not the evil world. This is the world that God created. God the Father owns the world. He owns a thousand cattle on a thousand hills. He is the creator. Uh, he's in charge of it. We know because he's revealed to us how it came into existence, what it's for. He, we know its future, how it's supposed to be used now. We're supposed to rule on his behalf, according to Genesis 1.28, as his vice regents on planet Earth. The whole world that God owns that belongs to him because we are adopted into his family and we are heirs of Christ and the Father. Everything that belongs to the Father also belongs to us. So the whole world is the possession of believers. Isn't that amazing? And that's what he means when he says that. All things belong to you. Even the entire world that you are to be stewards over on behalf of Jesus Christ and God the Father. Not only that, life, all of life is yours. Uh, this is the spiritual word for life. All that encompasses spiritual life is yours. All the beautiful treasures that come with it. With salvation, regeneration, and reconciliation and prayer and the word of God and the fellowship of the saints and believers and the church worldwide and all the promises of God that are yes and amen and that are innumerable and everything that God has ever blessed the church with belongs to you. Everything belongs to you. You can't say you're a pauper or that you don't own anything. You own everything by virtue of knowing Christ. Not only that, death is yours. Death, wow, that's kind of weird. Death belongs, yeah, death belongs to the Christian. In other words, we have a different perspective on death than the unbelieving world. We actually have the right perspective. Well, that's arrogant. No, it's what the Bible says. We have the right perspective about death because God told us. If God didn't tell us, we wouldn't know. We are not, in other words, we own death means we are not a slave of death. We are masters over death by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Before the service started, I overheard that one of my dearest friends in Christ died yesterday. I didn't know that. Just a beautiful, dear, saint, woman of God. And if she didn't know the Lord, that would be time to grieve. The fact that she is in glory right now is an amen for believers. That's what he means by you own death, Christian. That's why Paul could say, you know, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. How is dying gaining for the Christian? Because the moment you breathe your last, you are catapulted immediately into the glories of heaven. Death is ours. We are slaves of nothing save Christ alone. What else belongs to us as Christians? Well, things present, things going on in the world, life, things to come. That's talking about heaven and the glories of heaven that are unspeakable. We don't even know all the wonderful glories that are yet to come, but those are all our inheritance. They are guaranteed. They will be eternal. They will be perfect. They will be glorious. They all belong to us at the end of verse 22. Well, how is this possible? Well, it's, all, it's true only if you're a Christian, only if you are born again, only if you realize that you are a sinner condemned to hell and you need to be saved. And the only one that could save you is the Lord Jesus Christ as the God man who lived that perfect life and willingly died on the cross and got executed by the Holy Father as your substitute so that your sin might be forgiven. And then Jesus was buried and he rose again from the dead. He ascended on high as the savior of the world and called you into his family through the gospel, the good news of what he did for you as a sinner. And you believe that message. God, I, you're the only one that can save me. Be merciful to me. And then if you believe that, God saved you. He adopted you in the family of God. You're a Christian. You're regenerate. You're saved eternally. You can't lose your salvation. You are secure in Christ forever. And as a result, you have this relationship with Christ. And you belong to Christ. Verse 23. If you're a Christian, you belong to Christ. That's the number one way to solve your identity problem. Who am I? I don't have any friends. I don't. Have, well, no, you belong to Christ. You have the greatest friend there is. He loves you. You're secure in Christ. When Father looks down from heaven, He sees Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. You are enveloped in that righteousness. That is your true identity, Christian. So don't be myopic. See the true and the real big picture. That's what Paul's trying to do. Corinthians, get your head up and see the big picture. This will solve your petty little problems on earth. 
Keep heavenly minded. Keep your eye on the, the goal. Christian, you belong to Christ. You own all things in Him. And get this, Christ belongs to the Father. Talk about security. You have absolute, total, eternal, unshakable security in your salvation and identity in Christ forever. I hope that great, awesome truth gets you through lunch. Floating on cloud nine, because that's what it's supposed to do. So Paul isn't just shaking his finger rebuking him. He's, he's trying to bless them, man. Think about truth, and it will elevate you and encourage your heart like nothing else. But you've got to change your thinking. So let's not boast in human beings. Let's not do that. It robs God of His glory. So now he, make, he does make a little bit of a transition. His focus in verses 18 through 23 was how we should think about ourselves and other people and how they were doing it wrong. And now he shifts and says, here's how you should think about pastors and leaders in the church, how you should do it the right way. So that's uh, the next two points, four through five. So point number three, uh, do you judge pastors with human standards? Do you judge pastors? Should be the first question. Well, yeah, yeah, i got to be honest. Yeah, we all do or have done at some point, illegitimately. And do you do it with human standards? Yeah, typically, because I'm a human. And that's the point of verses 1 through 4. Let a man, let every Christian regard us, the apostles and the pastors of the church, and me and Paul and Apollos and Peter. When you judge us, um, here's how you should evaluate us, because you've been evaluating us the wrong way, is what he's saying in verse 1. So when you do evaluate us, keep this in mind. Let uh, a man, let you critical Corinthian Christians, regard us, pastors, in the following manner. As servants or attendants, or the ones who take orders from Jesus alone. That's what the word means. Third level galley slave, and then it transformed with time, meaning it was just somebody who was a, actually a free laborer, a free servant. They only had one master, and they took orders from only one master, and they said, I, I, I will obey and I will submit, and I will freely, willingly do so. This is not doulos slave or diakonos. This is a different word, and it's someone who attends to their orders of their master, and many times they got paid for doing it, and they did only what the master told them. What Paul is saying is, uh, Corinthians, newsflash, Apollos and Peter and Paul, we aren't taking orders from you as pastors in our job here. We are taking orders from our boss, Jesus and him alone. So, if we're not pleasing you or satisfying you in certain areas, it's understandable, and I understand why you're frustrated, but you got the wrong expectations, Corinthians. So that's your newsflash. That's what Paul's saying. Regard us as servants of Christ. He is our master, and it's him and him alone we obey. Not only that, and we are stewards of the mysteries of God. We don't have our own agenda, Paul's saying. As a pastor, as a pastor, I don't have... Uh, my own agenda. I was not self-appointed, and my agenda is not your agenda. I'm not going to do what you tell me to do. That is not why I'm a pastor. That isn't why God made me an apostle. I have one master. It is Jesus. Him and Him alone, I will obey. I have one agenda. That's the agenda that the master entrusted to me. That's what the word steward means. Stewards. Oikonomos. Economy. It's an economic term. But a steward... Three main components about a steward. What they possess, they don't own. And what Paul possesses is the truth of the Word of God. That is his main possession. I am supposed to dispense the truth of Scripture or the Bible. The truth, I didn't make it up. I didn't write it. I don't own it. I am not allowed to amend it. I am not allowed to skip the parts that are difficult or make people frustrated or confused or that will make them mad at me. He's talking about the revelation of God as a preacher. I am a steward. I don't own the material. This is, God owns this material. So that's the first thing. A steward doesn't own what he's responsible for. Second thing about a steward in this word is a steward does have delegated authority. He has some authority. The emphasis in the previous word where he said we are servants of Christ, the emphasis there is not on his authority, delegated authority, it's on his submission and servile attitude to the one master. Here, there is an element of, I do have authority, I have a right to speak this way in the church as an apostle or as a pastor within the confines of my job description where my responsibility is to preach the word of God and shepherd the church. And it, it's not my own authority, it is not inherent authority, it is authority that is delegated to me by God and God alone. 
And so there is an authority that leaders in the church have over the people within the proper confines. And then the last component is a steward is always accountable to his master. At some point, there's a reckoning. So you always got to give back. And then the master takes inventory and says, okay, I gave you 40 bucks. What would you do with it? Wow, there's only $35. You lost $5. What kind of steward are you? Or you gave, I gave you 40 bucks. Wow, $80? Wow, nice job. Good investment. Thank you for being wise with what I gave you. So a steward always means there's a day of reckoning. It is in the future. And the only one giving account is the master or the master steward, meaning Jesus. So Paul is saying, I'm not accountable ultimately to you Corinthians anyway if I'm doing my job properly. I am accountable only to Jesus who someday will measure up to see how I did with the economy or the money or the truth that he gave to me to be his steward and how I invested it. And I don't know what he's going to say, but someday he's going to let me know and make it made known. And that's true actually of every pastor. We are stewards of the mysteries of God. Uh, the, The mysteries of God is the revelation of God. For us today, that's the Bible. I am to preach the Bible and only the Bible and nothing but the Bible, but all of the Bible. The full counsel of God. And I can't deviate and compromise. and Otherwise, I'd be unfaithful. So uh, here's how you're supposed to... So change the way you think of me as a minister of God, Paul's telling them. Uh, verse 2, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards uh, that one be... And, oh, and then he says, and actually there's only one... Uh, main qualification or standard of judgment anyway with a steward. It's not that I be successful in the eyes of the world. It's not that I get a big church going with 15 Bible studies and uh, increasing the attendance and to 5,000 and our account is up to half a million and we've got 10 buildings and I've written all these books that are popular and blah, 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 blah. That's not the standard of measurement. Get this. Sometimes visible fruit in terms of human beings isn't even the standard of judging because story after story after story of missionaries throughout history who gave their lives for serving in certain places served there faithfully for years and saw maybe one or five or zero converts in their lifetime. But we're still faithful. So very dangerous to use human standards. And Paul says it's real simple. If you really want to judge me or if you really want to know the standard of whether I'm successful or not, it's my faithfulness. That's it. My faithfulness. Have I been faithful as a pastor? Have I been faithful as a steward of Christ with the mysteries of the Word of God? Well, no human being can answer that question. And no human being can answer that question in this lifetime. God and God alone. Verse 3. Paul says, but to me it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you. You know what? The fact that you guys have been examining me and judging me and pitting me up against Paul and Paul, you know, I really don't care. Because it doesn't matter. Your ultimate judgment doesn't matter. It is insignificant. It is wrong. You're not even looking for the right thing. You could care less about my faithfulness because you don't know if I'm faithful or not. You don't know what I'm doing in secret and you don't see me. You don't know what I'm doing in my conversations with other people. You don't know my motives or my intentions or my thoughts or my heart what he's saying but to me it is a very small thing that i may be examined and judged by you or get this by any human court as a matter of fact at the human level the human level cannot gauge and judge the spiritual realm how in the world say i preach a sermon this morning the word of god goes out or whatever at least i'm trying and i preach for 50 minutes and then uh, an hour later, so how did the sermon go today? That is a horrible question for me to field. <laughs> how did the sermon go today? In the early days, oh man, it was awesome. I had three alliterated points, a beautiful illustration. I only stumbled five times, uh, and on, but no. I, I gave up on that a long time ago. And every preacher knows this. When you're done preaching a sermon, you could go from here across the campus, and you've had seven people talk to you, and one person said, oh, that was wonderful, Pastor. And another person says, oh, that was really confusing. Did you really say that? Or, Pastor, I totally disagree with point number four. Uh, or how can you say that? And then you go to the fifth person, oh, man, that blessed my soul. And the next person, that was the best sermon I've ever heard you preach. And then I get to my car, and I am thoroughly confused. How was the sermon? I, I have no idea. But apparently people were listening, which is probably the most important thing. They were listening. Because it would be pretty horrible if you go and nobody says anything and they forgot what you said like an hour later. Oh, yeah, what, what were you preaching on? 
Were, were you the preacher? I thought that was Sam. No, that, it was me. And that's what Paul's dealing with here is this human standard of judgment. In fact, get this. He says, I do not even examine myself. See, Paul was just like, or I'm just like Paul. I gave up on that a long time. I can't objectively assess myself because I am biased towards myself. I love myself. How can I examine myself? And Paul knows that as well. He, he said in Romans 7, I have sin living in me, man. I, I'm all about me, but be honest. So I gave up on that. So, I mean, we can go to both extremes as humans. We can be, our, our inclination is to praise ourselves and to look for the good. But there's another inclination we have if we're highly, grossly introspective, is to be hypercritical of ourselves. And that's also depressing. Every time I try to get introspective, it gets ugly real quick because all I see is yuck on the inside of me. Like, ooh, I want to stop thinking about me. So that's why Paul's honest. I, I can't even judge myself. I don't know. I don't even know. I preach a sermon. I don't know who heard it. I don't know who's paying attention. I don't know whose life was uh, changed forever because of the efficacy of the Spirit of God and the Word of God and God's sovereignty working on an individual's heart. I have no idea. I may never hear about that. I, about a month ago, there was a young man sitting right here who came to our GBF the first year we started. And I was the youth pastor dude with my nine congregants before, Sunday, uh, before the sermon each week. And he was a high school guy locally. And he came for like 11 months. He never said anything. Quiet guy, reserved. And then just poof, he disappeared one day. Gone. That was the first year of GBF. And then it was like two, three months ago, he showed up in the front pew right here. Boom! Hey, that guy looks familiar. Came up to talk to me afterwards. Yeah, I used to go to GBF like uh, six years ago. I just want you to know, I went off to college uh, and I became a Christian. And I wanted to come back and tell GBF, thank you for sharing the gospel with me. And I was like, whoa. Thank you for telling me. Had he not come back, come back purposely to tell me that, I never would have known that. But I was like, amen, praise the Lord. That was awesome. Because I remember him, but I just don't remember. Hmm, I don't know if, if we had any impact on that guy. So that was cool. Uh, that's why we can't examine ourselves. Uh, verse 4, for I am conscious. <laughs> Paul's honest here in verse 4. He says, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. When I do examine myself, I'm always innocent. That's what he's saying. Verse 4, for I am conscious of nothing against myself. But I am not by this acquitted not guilty because I could have a blind spot. So therefore, I can't judge myself. That's why when I would do interviews, and this is typical in the interview process when I'd interview for churches, and this is a standard question, not even just in churches, but even in the business industry. What are your weaknesses? I hate that question. Um, and the reason I hate it is because I think, man, my weaknesses are just like Paul's in First Corinthians, or Romans 7. Sin lives in me. Nothing good lives in me. Oh, wretched man that I am. Is that enough for you? Bam. You probably don't want to hire me now, but anyway. Uh, I'm not acquitted. I'm not, not guilty. And here it is. But the one who exam the one, the only one who examines me is my master, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. In terms of my role as a pastor and a shepherd. Man, that's great to know. That's comforting for me as a pastor, by the way. And when you've been doing it for years and years and years, every pastor is just going to be subjected to criticism. It's just the, it's par for the course. It's the occupational hazard of being a pastor. And you've got to develop thick skin. And you've got to just entrust all the feedback, the good, the bad, and the ugly to God. It's like, Okay, God, you alone get the glory. You alone get the glory and keep refining me. And I can't be preoccupied with thinking on these things. Um, I want to read a quote from a couple of very wise, older men of God, pastors who wrote a little commentary on this section here about judging pastors. One says, a popular game played by many Christians is that of evaluating pastors. Have you ever played that game? Uh, all kinds of criteria are used to determine who are the most successful, the most influential, the most gifted, the most effective. Some magazines periodically make surveys and write up extensive reports, carefully ranking the pastors by church, membership, attendance at worship services, sizes of church staff and Sunday school, academic and honorary degrees, books and articles written, numbers of messages given at conferences and conventions, and so on. As popular as that practice may be, it is exceedingly offensive to God. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 4, 1 through 5 focuses on the true nature and marks of God's ministers. It sets forth the basic guidelines and standards by which ministers are to be 
or, or to minister and to be evaluated. It deals with what the congregation's attitude toward the minister should be and what the minister's attitude toward himself should be. In short, it puts the minister of God in God's perspective. It puts the minister of God in God's perspective. Paul makes it clear that popularity, personality, degrees, and numbers play no role in the Lord's perspective and that they should play no role in ours. Here's another different pastor who said that this is great about Paul evaluating himself and how we can't do that. Not just for pastors. As a Christian, you can't get too hung up on introspection. That could be morbid, actually, and too subjective. And so he's, he's talking to this. Paul himself is included among mankind, and so he goes on that he does not judge even himself. It is tremendously difficult to come to an accurate assessment of one's own achievement. And Paul points out, that in any case, it does not matter. The Christian is to be judged by his master. His own views on himself are as irrelevant as those of anyone else. This needs emphasis in a day when many are tempted to be introspective. Often they think that they themselves know just what their spiritual state is and just what their service for God has affected. The result may depress unduly or exalt above measure. But... It is not our task to pass such judgments. That's what Paul's saying. Right on. Let's go on to his conclusion number four, and that's verse five, which would be point number four. Are you a critical person? Uh, Therefore, do not go on passing judgment about the pastors and the ministers of the church and comparing them and criticizing them and exalting others before the time, before the ultimate judgment. He's, now he's saying there's only there's really only one time to judge a pastor and the efficacy of his work and the faithfulness of the course of his ministry. And that's at the end of the age when Jesus does it. So don't do it prematurely. So the verdict is still out. And he's talking about faithful pastors. He's not talking about false teachers or heretics here or pastors who are insane. He's talking about, on the surface, faithful pastors. Paul, Apollos, and anybody else that falls under that umbrella. Don't go on passing judgment, rendering verdicts before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light and the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. See, that's the thing right there. Humans cannot judge another person's motives. You don't know what a pastor's motive is. I don't either. We don't know each other's motives. A lot of times we don't even know our own motives because we can be self-deceived. But someday Jesus, he'll make it known. He'll expose it with fire and keep the gold and burn up the chaff. He'll bring it to light, exposing the motives of men's hearts. And then get this, each man, each pastor, each faithful minister, Paul, Apollos, Peter, they're going to get their reward. What is the reward? Well, he mentioned a reward in chapter 3, verse 8, and he mentioned reward in chapter 3, verse 14. What is that reward? It is praise, verse 5. God will give praise. God will give praise to those who are faithful. That's part of the reward. We think, really, that's all we're going to get? It's just an attaboy when we get to heaven? I want more. I want things. I want responsibilities. I want my own cloud to float on. No praise. Praise Praise from Almighty God of the universe. That's pretty awesome. Wow. And it's probably ongoing, continual, eternal praise forevermore. Wow. That's just one of the wonderful, blessed rewards that faithful Christians will get for faithful service in this lifetime. With that, to wrap up, thank you, Paul, for reminding us. Here's some practical things for us to keep in mind. Christian, don't elevate people. Do not boast in people or human beings. Saints, do not compare pastors with each other. Saints, ask God to keep you teachable as you pray to Him on a regular basis. Saints, when uh, people share a critique with you and say you could be self-deceived, listen, stop, reflect. Have them pointed out specifically. Two more. Believers, stay in the Scripture. That's what keeps us objective. That's how God's living Word keeps our heart and our minds tender. And then finally, give God alone the glory. Can I get an amen on that? Amen. Let's go ahead and pray for lunch. Father, thank You for this day, our time together. It is our desire that you and you alone get all the glory. We are inescapably self-centered, self-protective. God, help us to not be self-deceived. 
Thank you for the people you surround us, iron sharpening iron, to point out when we are being self-centered or self-serving or self-deceived. God, keep us in your word. We need your help. We need your grace. And Father, continue to remind us that we need to keep giving you and you alone the glory for all things. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.